processing went well. Right after weaning, 35 calves were processed, no problems, completed in record time. The next morning, four were dead. What happened? We'll find out on Talks Talk. We've got Dr. Scott Fritz, who's a toxicologist here at Kansas State University. He's joining us today to talk about this case. Good morning, Scott. How's it going today? We're happy to have you, as you always bring us the interesting cases. And I started it with processing went well, but uh, maybe on second glance, if we had four out of 35 that ended up dead the next day, processing didn't go quite as well as what we hoped. Yeah, that's probably the gist of it. <laughs> Typically, we don't like to have some death loss with that. Yeah, so these these calves, and these were 500-pound calves that were weaned, processed the same day at a commercial operation in the Midwest, cow-calf operation, and they, after they went through their normal processing procedures, the next day four of them were found dead. So I'm going to ask you to kind of walk us through and maybe start with, I'm going to say normal processing procedures. What was included in their protocol? So this at weaning, this was the second round. So the basically the booster shot, and they, you know, just the way things work, they did it the same day they weaned. Um, so there was just a booster shot of a clostridial vaccine, a five-way, you know, respiratory virus vaccine. They gave them an injectable dewormer and an injectable trace mineral product and implanted them. Okay, pretty and then standard, they pretty standard, pre program. pretty standard protocol, nothing out of the ordinary there. And then when the when the calves died, so just to be sure that I get the timeline because there's a couple things just based on this brief history what's going through your head what are some of the things you're thinking about well the fact that it's this close to processing you, I mean that's the first question when they use and you wonder about some sort of anaphylactic reaction to a vaccine if, you know sometimes you'll even get that with the injectable uh, vitamin products which we didn't give in this case um, you wonder about an endotoxin overload from a you know frozen and thawed seven way something along those lines and that's, you know, that's where the initial questions asked before it ever got to talks. And that's, you know, a lot of times these, these cases will get sorted off in other sections even. Yeah. And a lot, and if we think about some of those things on your differential list, the timing now becomes important because my anaphylactic reaction, I expect relatively soon after processing my endotoxin reaction could start soon, but may drag into a day or two later as that kind of builds and makes them a little more depressed. Uh, so now I'm going to go back and ask a little more detail that I probably should ask at the start. They were they were processed one day. The calves were dead the next day. Was the what what what's the gap between those? Are we talking hours? Or are we talking almost a full day later? Were they fine immediately after processing, which would make anaphylaxis go a lot lower on my list. So the history I got was processed after lunch. So you assume, you know, one, two o'clock, 35 head. Typically, it's not going to take that long, so probably done about that time. And then when they came back to feed in the morning is when they found the dead calves. So 12 okay. hours, a little okay. over maybe. So doing, so doing okay right after processing, which is when I might think about anaphylaxis. So they find those dead calves. What's their first step? What do they do? Well, one of them, I don't, you know, if you only have one calf, a lot of times it just kind of gets pushed under the rug maybe. But with four of them, you know, have a veterinarian, have a veterinarian come out and do a necropsy is a great place to start. Okay. And what'd they do in this case? So in this case, they actually brought an entire carcass to the diagnostic lab, which is a great option as well. And, and at the D lab, we appreciate that the students get a chance to do some necropsies. And, and then for, um, you know, from a testing standpoint, all the samples we could possibly need are here. 
at least from a animal tissue standpoint, but there's, you know, some other things that you need to add from a, a submission standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So they brought in, we're able to do a full necropsy on it. What, what were some of the findings on that necropsy? Um, some of the gross lesions, you know, they're just a, some hemorrhages in the cranial ventral part of the thorax on the surface of the heart, some the coronary vessels there, and that's basically it. Um, you know, maybe some evidence of a cardiovascular episode. Yeah, so, so some of the, you talked about petechiae ecmosis on the epicardium. Uh, there was some ascites, a little bit of ascites maybe in these cases. Was that also go along? Yeah, there, and I don't remember the, I mean, they quantified that fluid. I just don't remember. There was enough that it was abnormal. Okay. And then what about the liver? Anything with the liver? Kind of congested looking, I think. And then, you know, the real evidence came out with a histologic evaluation. Okay. And what did you, you find on histopath? Uh, so, the, you know, multiple tissues were affected in the liver. There was some central lobular necrosis. Um, it was kind of bridging. It was pretty acute. And so, again, fits with the short timeline. Um, in the heart, you know, they saw all the, the hemorrhaging, and then there was actually some myocardial degeneration with that. And in the kid, kidney, it was there was just some medullary congestion, which, you know, kind of all nonspecific, really, but um, still some things to talk about. But, sure. but multiple body systems impacted, so which both both our anaphylaxis and our endotoxemia, we would think those those could be impacted. And a lot of signs that this was relatively acute. So what are, what are you thinking at that point once you get back the gross and the histopathology? I'm not a pathologist, so it's hard for me to, you know, I, I don't really evaluate it based upon that. Um, the pathologist comments when you have that, that pattern, you know, the central lobular necrosis sort of suggests a toxic insult. Um, it's not 100% specific for that, but that's at least, you know, they, they at least start looping us into these cases at that point. Yeah, so they're, th they're thinking at that point, hey, this is more than just what we would expect with just a reaction yeah, to that, one of the processing items. That's my take on the report anyway. Okay. And so at that point, you had, because you saved, and this is, I think, a good point, you go through these necropsies and you get one like this, A, we don't know exactly what's going on and we want to figure out the cause, and B, because of the timing and the number of dead cattle that happened right afterwards, with those first four dead calves, I don't know if the same thing is going to happen to the next 31 or something different. And because of the proximity to processing, I'm starting to think about what might be my follow-up if it was a problem with one of the processing agents I used. So I want to document everything, right? Yeah, I sums it up, I think. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to take the sample if you're going to do anything with it. And so the, the more robust you can be with your submission, the greater likelihood you're going to have of reaching yeah. a diagnosis. So histopath and fresh samples on everything, which they did in this case. Yep. And they included, even submitted the, you know, the vaccines, the injectable products. They submitted all of that, which, you know, there's not a lot of testing you can do, at least routinely at diagnostic labs on a lot of that. But there is some. And so it, it pays to submit them. In worst case, we can find a place that can do some of that if we don't do it. If you need to for follow-up or whatever. So if we don't have it, we can't do that. So it was good that they submitted those in yeah. this case. Can, can you test for, you mentioned the endotoxins. Is that something that's routinely tested for in those products, the level of endotoxin? That is well outside my area of expertise. All right. <laughs>
so so we could we could find out though if that's yeah. if that's something but i don't i don't think it's routine but i think there there's it's you'd, possible to get it done i just would yeah. have, i don't have specifics for you okay so after you saw the centrolobular necrosis in the liver which is really what kind of keyed the thought process to maybe there's a toxin involved or not what was your thought process when they said, hey, start thinking about this case? What, what are some of the things on your list of, of ideas from a toxic standpoint? The, so the liver is a primary source of metabolism, and a lot of things will cause liver damage. So it really doesn't, you know, that particular set of lesions doesn't really narrow down a list much for us. Uh, but given the proximity to processing, then we, you know, the first thing we did was run a trace mineral panel just in this case, it was fairly quick and easy to do, like it was a day that we typically run that assay. Um, so we were able to get it on the machine pretty quick. It's just sort of a preliminary screen um, stacked with the histopath just to get an idea. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do, but it also can get pretty expensive pretty quick. Yeah, because the problem is most, most of those are not panels. They're targeted searches. I'm yeah. looking for X or Y or Z. Yeah, and it's so when you have targeted assays like that, not many labs will offer those and so you have to start calling around and find labs that do and they each have different sample requirements and days of testing and it can kind of get drug out a while and so it's impossible for one lab to do all of these targeted screens or targeted assays um, and so it does it can take some time in those cases and so anything we can do like you said in the short term just to try to clue us in on what's going on, that's what we're going to try to do. Okay. So trace mineral panel, would that be the same thing? Like if I did a liver biopsy and turned it in for mineral analysis, would that be the same panel that you're running there? Yep. It's just a, so in a, when you get a sample from a dead critter, we would do it on wet weight or as received because you're getting a chunk rather than a liver biopsy. You're getting a much smaller sample volume and we'll actually dry those and do them dry weight. But it's you know, we Does can, it matter what weight know, versus dry weight? We can get a moisture content on a wet weight sample, and there's you know ballpark conversions. We could run them dry weight. It's just faster to do them um, wet weight in a case like this. Okay. And what is a trace mineral panel? What does that typically include? Every lab's going to be a little bit different. Uh, so it's going to include actually some of the macro minerals, calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium. All those will be on there. And, it, it, and again, depends on the lab. Some of them will even include some heavy metals. You might see cadmium or lead on there. Um, the way we do it, we're typically doing nutritional evaluations in beef cattle. So we're looking at um, things like copper, iron, manganese, selenium, zinc, uh, you know, some of those things that we would you know, typically add to increase performance or do the best we can from a health standpoint. Yeah, because some of those are, are they higher and lower in different regions of the country? Or are they always low unless we supplement them? No, there's a really geographic distribution to a lot of those metals. So we've, you know, we've talked, at least in Kansas, we've, we've had some data that shows that probably half of beef cows in Kansas are copper deficient. And so it, there's other places in the country where the exact opposite is true. And so it is pretty geographically driven. And I, there's probably some tolerance with animals that are born and raised and grown in those areas. But then, you know, we're kind of getting to the weeds with some of that. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's one panel does not cover the whole country. Yeah, so back to and, and I just think this is relevant to this discussion. So when I take that panel, I take that assessment, trace mineral analysis. How transient are those things in the liver? So like you just talked about copper. If I look at copper in the liver today, 
is that indicative of where that calf is today and tomorrow he could be at a totally different place? Or is that indicative of where that calf is over the last six months, two months, three months? What's my range there? Does that make sense? Yes, it's going to depend a little bit on the mineral in question. So copper, you know, the liver copper is probably going to give you a valuation in the last 30 to 45 days. And that's probably going to vary somewhat with the age of the animal. Um, Serum minerals typically aren't a lot of value. Serum copper is maintained in a pretty tight window. It's almost always normal until there's none left in the liver. Uh, so the liver is the storage organ for a lot of these minerals, and it's it's our best guide. And, you know, right now it's the gold standard um, for most of them for body status. And, it, and it's kind of what their body status is and what has built up or depleted over time, and it's unlikely that it's going to go dramatically up or down. So if we get something that's out of bounds, it's probably not a, ha- a problem that happened yesterday, Which because from our case, I'm relating back to and this seems very acute. So it seems like if one of these is out of bounds, that didn't happen yesterday, probably. Probably. And I mean, there, there's caveats to that. There's sometimes, you know, following injections that some of these minerals can go up pretty substantially, but they'll go right back down in a relatively short term. So okay. again, it depends. It just depends on the, the mineral in question. All right. So what'd you find on this case? So this, I mean, the, the mineral panel was pretty much normal. The, the big standout was the selenium. Um, was about six times the upper end of the reference range. Um, that said, the injectable product contains selenium, and we will see elevations like that following injection. It's not all that uncommon, uh, but usually with that, you get some elevations in the other minerals in that uh, in that product. So that particular one also contains copper, manganese, and zinc, and you will see elevations. You know that. That profile typically shows up in a liver panel fairly quickly after an injection, and in this case, it was only the selenium that was elevated, which is a little bit weird, in at least in, in the experience I've had here. Yeah, that's odd, because w- what you're saying is, if it was just the injection that did it, then I would expect to have the copper and manganese and everything else increase too, but you didn't see that. No. No, but it was just the selenium was the, the only abnormality on the entire panel. Yeah. So did, in in this case, the selenium, could that have caused the signs that you're seeing? Yeah, so there's, selenium's a little bit confusing. There's multiple different syndromes depending on the dose and the timeline. And so if we're talking about acute selenium poisoning, is going to look a lot like a selenium deficiency. You do get some muscle damage with that. You can get cardiovascular collapse. Um, and some, you know, honestly, the the histologic lesions that we saw here lined right up with what you read for acute selenium poisoning and so those are typically from misformulated injections is is number one at least that we see in in veterinary species but or misdose too given too much or having it misformulated is what you're saying miss you know miscalculating body weights or giving double doses that sort of thing Um, occasionally you'll see some misformulated feeds too that can contribute to that Um, that's more of an accumulation that you know, at some point reaches a threshold and, and then you're kind of an acute presentation of an accumulation problem. So when you're talking about poison, because selenium is one of the ones where you have to Goldilocks it, right? You got to be in the, you can't have too much, you can't have too little. And w- when I'm thinking of selenium, I guess I'm typically thinking on the on the light side because we talk about trying to supplement it and white muscle disease, does that tie into this case or no? It could, but you would see some of that histologically. I mean, that's a, a histologic diagnosis, which we weren't able to do. 
And you're right. I think of selenium's on the light, and so I think of the trace minerals in general. You know, if we're adding, you know, take a mixer wagon, trace minerals we're adding maybe a thimble full to that, whereas our macro minerals we're adding a five gallon bucket full. Yeah. That's the easiest analogy I can think of. And so selenium is legally regulated, and in, in feed it's three tenths of a part per million, so 0.3 part per million in complete feeds, or the diet should be formulated to supply three milligrams per head per day. Okay. So it's a pretty tight window because if I don't get enough of it, I'm going to have problems, and that's where I might see the white muscle disease. And if I get too much of it, I could have this selenium poisoning, which you said causes some of the same symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And usually with white muscle disease, you know, we're thinking of younger calves for the most part, young, rapidly growing calves. Um, and, you know, these had been these have been creep fed and so they're you know obviously had a chance to deliver some of that and so it wouldn't really fit for what i'd normally suspect for a white muscle disease okay so you we have a, a product that was given that contains selenium but it also contains zinc copper and manganese and only the selenium was elevated and the upper range of selenium just to refresh was about 2.5 parts per million and the selenium in this was nearly 13. So, yeah. so really high, high enough to cause toxicity, but it's the only one out of the four in that injection that were there. So you, you probably looked, was, was the injection formulated correctly? Yeah. So that's one thing we're going to do. And we looked, and so it's, it's kind of hard to run that. So we, we were just talking about a very small amount. Well, an injectable product, it's in percent quantities. And so it, those analyses are a little bit more difficult to do, but we did um, we're able to measure those four minerals and they're, you know, they've got right on label what they should be. And they were well within, you know, there's established tolerances for that. We didn't look them up, but they were pretty close to what the labels, but I mean, almost impossible to differentiate what the label said. Okay. So it's not coming from the injection, although certainly some came from the injection, but that's not what causing it to be really high. Where do we look now? So they submitted the creep feed in this case too. And, you know, this, it's all part of the investigation. You, you, you know, you can have some dietary problems. And so we went to look at that and they submitted a loose mineral. And so we're trying to just get a, a total picture of what these calves were being fed. And the loose mineral contained about 26 part per million, which it sounds high. You know, I just said three tenths of a part per million, but that's in complete feed. This loose mineral is formulated for two to four ounces per head per day. Uh, so that's pretty standard. The one that really caught our eye was that the creep feed had 25 part per million in it, which should be a complete feed at that point. And they were consuming, you know, meant to consume whatever, three or four pounds of that per day. And so that to me was a big red flag and, and at least it warrants some, some investigation. Wow. Was it, where, where did it, uh, was that a misformulation or was that something that, how did that end up so high? It has to be a more misformulation. Legally, it's, you know, in a complete feed should be 0 0.3 uh, parts per million. In this one, it was 25. And so you wonder if there was a, you know, two decimal places missed in the formulation of that. Um, you know, we could come up with a bunch of hypothetical situations why that would happen. But when you sit down and actually calculate that out, Remember, daily intake should be three milligrams per head per day, and those two combined for 36 milligrams per head per day. And so we've got a, just a way too much in the, in the daily diet in this case. Wow. So where does it, the selenium has to be added to the diet, right? So it's not when they're, when they're formulating, putting the ration together, it's, 
we're adding that to the diet or is it coming from certain, are there components that you'd put in a diet that are just naturally high in selenium? The answer is probably both. I mean, there are, so there's certain areas of the country that have extremely high selenium in the soil. And so any of the forages grown in that soil can potentially accumulate quite a bit of selenium. And if that happens to be alfalfa per se, then that gets dehydrated and then put into a commercial pellet, you could certainly have some there. And if there was no testing done on the front end, I, it would be difficult, I think, to get this high from that. But, it, it, you know, it could be at least a contributor. But do you think the injection is what would the injection have set them over the edge and caused our acute response? So if they were already high and you said the liver is kind of our status for the last little bit on how the body's capacity is holding these selenium's way high, selenium's high in the diet. And then I give them an injection of selenium. Does that fit with what we observed in these calves? Would it happen that rapidly? That was my interpretation of the case. And, you know, we've, we've kind of kicked this one around within the group here um, you know, we do see a transient increase in selenium following those injections that goes back down over time. But then when you stack that with the clinical signs yeah. and the dietary elevation, I think this was an accumulation. And then, yeah, if you started really high and it goes up even more, you could... I think that's what tipped them over the edge. And I, I don't know that there's any way to actually prove that, but yeah. I mean, it's just like any case that you never know 100%, but put the pieces of the puzzle together and, and do the best you can with an interpretation. And that's where we're at. Excellent. This, this is that is not what I expected to see come in when we started talking because the way you described it, I'm thinking anaphylaxis, endotoxin, something else in the products, something there. And basically the products worked exactly and did exactly what we wanted them to do. It's just that when they came, the cattle came in to get the products, they started with a really high level of selenium. Yeah, and it, you'd never know that, you know, until you start looking and it, it just... It shows that when things are abnormal, I think, and you have an abnormal presentation and the test results aren't what you expect, that you need to keep digging. Anything you'd do different in this case as you went back through it? Um, for the workup, you know, it, it's hard when it comes in, when it's a full carcass and, there, you know, there's multiple different sections involved. I think it is smart like this. We kind of threw the kitchen sink at it pretty fast. And, you know, sometimes that's going to be cost prohibitive but in some cases like this one that's what you have to do it to, made sense. to yeah. reach a diagnosis at least in a timely fashion so you know recommendations here then you need to go back and and get rid of that creep feed and you know there's a potential for some you know medical legal outcomes for this case and we'll you know kind of see monitor how that goes yeah so that was going to be one of my questions is can i take that can i take that creep feed and dilute it out enough and keep feeding it if i have a lot of it or do i just need to get rid of it I'm sure you could dilute it out, but I don't know of any place that would buy it on on that big a scale where it wouldn't you wouldn't just discard it. Yeah, because you're talking about a big difference between uh, the level in the creep feed and the recommended level, right? Yeah, hundred x difference, right? The smart thing to do would be to keep some of that and freeze it and stick it in the back of a freezer somewhere so that you don't lose it in case you need it, yeah. you know, later on. But that's Excellent. another story for another day. Excellent. Well, we will put some information uh, up on the website that will talk a little bit about selenium and some of the impacts, especially with selenium poisoning. Anything, any other places to go if we have information? Or I think the, the best place is going to be the website. We'll just try to put everything there so it's all in one spot. And, you know, you can look in the show notes and get some, of the, some further references off of those documents. Perfect. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you joining us today and another good one. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brad.